Welcome everyone to the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger and I am your host. This season of the RJOS podcast, entitled The Road Less Traveled, highlights surgeons who have taken a non-traditional path during their orthopedic career. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason. The list of accolades and accomplishments of Dr. Simpson Mason is very impressive and includes being the founder and executive director of the Nth Dimensions program, being the founder and CEO of beyondtheexamroom.com, and winning the AAOS Diversity Award in 2015. It was such an honor and pleasure to speak with Dr. Simpson Mason, and I'm very excited to share our conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the RJOS podcast with Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason. Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason, thank you so much for joining us on the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society podcast. Um, I have been wanting to speak with you for such a long time, so I'm very excited that you and I can finally talk to each other. Wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, having me. So I first just want to get started with your background. Uh, If you could describe your background for us, where you went to medical school, residency, fellowship, and your post-fellowship years. Oh, absolutely. Um, So I'm Bonnie Simpson-Mason, proud graduate, third third generation graduate of Howard University in Washington, D.C. as an undergraduate in chemistry. Um, My parents actually met at Howard as well, and I had a great uncle that attended Howard University College of Medicine uh, back in the 50s. Um, Following uh, graduation from Howard, um, I matriculated to Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, um, where I received my MD, followed um, uh, mid-school graduation with my general surgery internship at UCLA for one year, and then completed my orthopedic surgery residency back at Howard University Hospital. Um, uh, In what year was it, Doc? It was 2001. It was 2001. I I don't give that that date out freely. <laughs> so you got more information than most. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, when was the first moment you remember wanting to do orthopedic surgery? Well, this is a hilarious story. So um, I sustained a hamstring injury in high school during cheerleading tryouts. Um, and this was during track season as well. So it had an impact on both of the Uh, team activities that I was a part of. But um, during tryouts, I went down for a split and felt a searing pain right under my ischial tuberosity. Um, I forget which leg, but I had to undergo some some rehab and some physical therapy. And um, our athletic trainers were great. And I came home one day and I said, Mom, you know, I want to be a physical therapist. And my mom... uh, in and of herself was just a pioneer, one of my number one role models, because she was a construction engineer in the 70s and 80s in Atlanta, and that was post-Civil Rights Atlanta. So she was in an all-male field back in the day, um, handling business, and I just watched her get up daily. um, And what I came to learn uh, was in this, you know, (laughs) in construction, back then. And so she said to me very clearly, she said, well, why not be the physician that tells the physical therapist what to do? Hmm. Okay. (laughs) It it was that simple. Wow. Decision made, (laughs) decision made, but it it was, it took a little bit of time to investigate all of the avenues through which I could become, I could, I could get into sports medicine. Um, and orthopedic surgery was one of those roots, and we know the other roots. But once it was presented, really probably more as an ego challenge, um, which one is the hardest? Well, it's orthopedics. Well, that's the one I want to do. So I pursued it, <laughs> as a typical orthopedist might say. Um, I fit the mold early uh, in my aspirations. Oh, my gosh. That's such a great story. Ugh. And I know that you're mentioning your mom was such a great role model for you in your pre-medical school years. Um, can you talk about some of your memorable mentors during medical school as well as residency? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, as we'll come to to talk about in the podcast, you know, Nth Dimensions was really born out of my experience of not having any orthopedic surgery role models that looked like me. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly Morehouse School of Medicine is a school that prides itself, um, and happily so, I'm a proud graduate of you know, creating more primary care physicians um, in our communities. But my goal was to be an orthopedic surgeon. So I actually had to take additional time during my first and second years in medical school to go into the community and work with community orthopedists on top of standard classwork because we did not and still do not have uh, a department of orthopedic surgery. And that's the case for so many um, schools in the in the uh in the country, we can't presume that the orthopedic exposure is there. Right. But um, I was industrious and found um, an orthopedic surgeon who you know, was a male. I looked him up in the phone book, so I'm totally dating myself, but I found him called and he, uh, Dr. William Craven, um, who is a Yale graduate. Yeah. <laughs> a, Yale, a Yale University orthopedic graduate who invited me to his office and I kept showing up, kept showing up, kept showing up. And he said, well, I guess you're serious because you keep showing up. And he said, well, I will go ahead and introduce you to my classmate uh, whom you need to meet. And I said, okay, who's that? And he said, Dr. Claudia Thomas. I said, oh, absolutely. I'd love to meet her. And he said, well, she's the first African-American woman to become board certified in orthopedics in the country. At that time, she was um, on faculty at, at Hopkins. Mm. And I, I don't know if I gave her a phone call or wrote a letter, like literally wrote a letter to her. And uh, she took me under her wing. At that point, we would have, we would speak on the phone. And I, I remember email, I'm email, email was did not exist. I remember mailing her my personal statement. And she edited it in, in pen and sent it back to me. Um, and she said, well, you know, we met at a conference um, face to face and she said, well, I want to introduce you to Dr. Richard Grant. And Dr. Grant was the chief of orthopedic surgery at Howard at the time. And at that point, Howard had graduated more um, African-American women in orthopedics than any other program at the time, um, with the exception of I can't remember which programs now. Uh, we still may hold that designation. So. Um, I met Dr. Grant, and from that, my I, I knew that I needed and wanted critical support from a program that knew the importance of graduating mm-hmm. women. And because Howard had by uh, had de, you know by demonstration, not just in words, had successfully graduated women who looked like me, I knew I wanted to go to Howard. Mm-hmm. And so I wound up doing a rotation there. Um, uh, following a rotation where I was the first black female to to rotate at that particular hospital as a sub-intern. Um, and I just remember experiences during that rotation that made me question whether I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon and whether orthopedics wanted me, mm. uh, such as scrubbing into a case with the chair at that program and a white male student and the chair only addressed the white male student during the surgery, mm. um, even though we were both scrubbed. Right. Um, and tried as I might to interject or ask a question, I was literally ignored the entire case. And, um, you know, that's just one of the instances I remember. And I was not invited for an interview uh, following that, um, following that rotation. It just left me with a lot of questions. Um, my next rotation was my rotation at Howard, which was extremely uh, tough. But at least I saw people that looked like right. me who were also working very hard. And um, one of the chief residents at the time was a woman who was 5'2", maybe 110 pounds. And I looked at her and I said, oh, well, she can do it. I can yes. do it. Because I'm at least, I'm 5'5", five, five, <laughs> right. right? Maybe 120 pounds at the time, but... <laughs> Oh, okay. So this is doable, Mm -hmm. right? So this is plausible. This is feasible. So that's why representation matters. I had already made that decision in my mind when I met Dr. Thomas for the first time. 
but my experiences in the larger community of orthopedics caused me to question mm-hmm. that. And, and I came very, very close to not um, considering, um, not going through with orthopedics, even though um, I had the, I had a, a limited opportunity to work with the Emory orthopedic surgery team while I was at Morehouse for just two weeks. They had reached an agreement where our students could at least get the experience. And I had um, a second year res no, he was a third year resident at the time, Dr. John Hyman, um, who really just gave it to me straight and said, this is going to be the hardest thing you ever do in your life, but you can do it, but you're going to have to put in the work, which I wasn't afraid of. Right. But he was the one that, you know, encouraged me, my chief, the chief resident on that service at the time, wrote me a letter of recommendation. So by the time I got to my fourth year, I had made the decision. I was committed. But then there were these little bitty things that said, I don't know. I don't know if you belong. I don't know if you fit, but I pushed through anyway. But it was because, I mean, that's just the sequence of events that led up to my matching at Mm. at Howard in orthopedics. That's awesome. I actually, I had the fortunate opportunity to be able to speak to Dr. Claudia Thomas um, on my other podcast. And I think one of the, she is such a powerful force. And what I love about her is, you know, when she talks Mm -hmm. about her experiences, she always, she basically was just like, I just acted crazy, you know? And like, they didn't give her a locker. (laughs) And she literally, so like her, she only had a, she had to go to the nurses area uh, because they didn't have any female doctor lockers. And so she went into the door that said physician locker room and there are all these men and she just walked in there and it was just such a very powerful force. And I was very inspired by it. And one of the questions I asked her was whether or not she thought that she experienced more racism or more sexism during her career because unfortunately orthopedic surgery is the least um, diverse field in medicine not just for gender but also for racial and ethnic diversity and so I was actually wondering if you could speak to your experiences and whether you thought that you faced more sexism or more racism during your time. Well certainly uh matriculating at Howard for orthopedic surgery training, racism was off the table. Um, But it was very clear that um, boys played differently in the sandbox than girls. And that was when I was really uh, fortunate to have people on my team, uh, such as Dr. Thomas, and I and I saw her shoot straight shots, just like she so <laughs> described with you. I witnessed I witnessed that at, at Hopkins. Her speaking, oh, providing clarity mm-hmm. in the way that only she can. I was like, oh, so, and I was like, wait, am I gonna am I gonna be able to fill that space because I see what she's who she's had to be to be where she is? Like, right? Oh. I mean, that was part of the revelation. Like, well, if you're going to do this, this is going to be part of what's required. And so I just said, okay, well, so that was important. But then my, my mom was also a huge resource for me. Um, she was my pillar during residency when it got really, really hard. And she, you know, talked to me about, you know, how guys might, you know, be at each other's throats during the day and then go off and have a beer, you know, later that That's evening. So like I just didn't understand how they could hit each other so hard. And then it was like, it was okay. Um, and then one, my chair said to me something that was very important. He said, I'm from East point, Georgia, literally from East point. So my nickname became East point. So he's like, East point, you know, you have to proceed every day, you know, chin with your chin down and then lead with your left. And I was like, Really? So that's a boxing analogy where you protect yourself, but be ready to punch, you know, at any given time. Like you have to, you know, you have to stay ready. And once he kind of framed it like that, 
that helped me deal from a gender perspective with the guys. Mm. Right. So, um, and let me know that, you know, I could learn to communicate the way he, they communicate. So when they cross the line with some sexist joke or something like that, I would just ball up a white sheet of paper and throw it in the middle of the room. That's a flag on the play from football. They know what that means. Right. I didn't have to say a word when they went too far. I just ball up a sheet of paper and throw it in the middle of the room. And they're like, oh, we crossed the line. We did too much. Yes, you did. Because, you know, I understand boys are going to be boys, but you still have to remain some, you have to remain respectful on some level. Because I am here, I'm a woman, and I'm not going to change being a woman. Right. Right. So um, from that perspective, um, about maybe in my PGY three year about halfway through the year I got my boys club card like one day it just felt different Mm. I didn't feel like I was a woman in orthopedics I just felt like I was part of the team um and for me that was I can't tell you when it was or what you know precipitated the shift other than there was a notable shift and at some point you know I learned to cuss and if I needed to I cussed cuss right back and then I was like okay well I'll see you tomorrow you know this is it, 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 it was probably a shift in me as well as a shift in them so right um so that's from the from the gender perspective and then from the from the race perspective I certainly um felt that more when I would attend the academy and um that's where I stuck stuck out like a sore thumb and that's when I felt most uncomfortable, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moving into the spaces where, um, and you know, intersectionality refers to both being a woman and race, being a black woman. So that's where my intersectionality, you know, stood out the most um, early on at some of the, you know, national meetings that we went to, right, um, and attended. So. Um, I will, you know, I will say that um, I think that adds to the level of complexity of being a woman in orthopedics, um, because you're certainly not assumed to be an orthopedic surgeon, even with your badge on at the academy with the little stripe color bar across the bottom, which is in and of itself needs to be revised. But, um, you know, the fact that both exist, um, presents a double layer of barriers that we, um, you know, learn about and, and come to manage, um, which is an, an additional couple of layers of stress mm-hmm. uh, just in, you know, reaching the goal that you want to reach. But, you know, our goal is to communicate, talk about that, um, discuss it with people who are open to the discussion, um, recognizing our reality may not be your lived experience. Um, and we're willing to share if you're willing to listen, but if not, we'll just put our heads down and keep it moving. Right. Right. So I would, I would say that because both exist, I've seen extremes in both areas, uh, both simultaneously and, you know, independently. So yeah, that's a both and response to your question. (laughs) No, that's fantastic. I really appreciate your perspectives on it because I think it's just something that, quite frankly, we don't think about and we don't experience. And so if it's out of sight, out of mind and literally out of our experience, then out of mind. And I do want to talk about nth dimensions. And one of the unique aspects of your career is the creation of the nth dimensions educational solutions. So can you tell us and our listeners what this organization does and just literally the story of how you founded such an organization? Uh, absolutely. So our, well, nth dimensions is a 501c3 nonprofit organization um, that was formally incorporated in 2005. Um However, I had begun the work as a maybe a second year attending back in 2002 after completing my residency training and going into private practice um, in Washington, D.C., small two-person orthopedic practice. My goal has always been part of my mission, lived mission, not even just aspirational mission, but 
Um, if I'm not of service, if I'm not giving back, if I'm not um, turning on my flashlight to highlight the path that I just took um, for someone else, then I'm not doing my part. So if I'm not doing anything else, I want to make sure the path I just traversed is, is illuminated for someone else. So in 2002, um, I asked my one of my instrument reps at the time if he would bring a trade back to Morehouse School of Medicine with me to demonstrate um, clinically how what they're learning in gross anatomy relates to what I do in orthopedic surgery. And my gross anatomy professors at the time, um, who are still there, um, said yes. And we went down, we took a couple of sawbones with us. This is in 02. And their class was very small, about 40 people at the time. And we took those students through what we now are calling a bioskills sawbones workshop. Um, we started doing that work back then with one tray and one rep. Wow. And um, every year subsequent to that, um, 03, 04, um, you know, we continued to take you know, one rep, one tray when we got the attention of um, the, the corporate office. And I'll just say it was Zimmer um, right now. And they said, well, we want to support the work you're doing, but, you know, it needs to be a formal mm -hmm. relationship. And uh, at that time was right around the time that um, I was um, taking early retirement from orthopedic practice secondary to being diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis as a chief resident. Mm. Um, I had been able to operate for about three years, um, but um, it was becoming increasingly painful to operate, much less do, you know, a Lockman's or, you know, a standard <laughs> yeah. physical exam on some of our, you know, what's required. So we know what that means. And um, I remember my partner did a case with me uh, it was a knee scope and had done the medial and lateral compartment debridements and left me with the patellofemoral compartment to, to finish up. And I just remember even just manipulating the scope uh, on that day. I knew it was my last surgery uh, because it was so painful. Um, and I knew that I was going to have to, I could no longer operate right. because it wasn't going to be fair, to, not just to me, but to the patients. So I had already come to that reckoning with um, that loss of, you know, this career that, you know, we fight for this. Yeah. But um, simultaneously, what had given me some hope and some light was going back to Morehouse every year. So by 05, when I was approached to um, enter a formal relationship, um, that's when I submitted my own 1023 um, application to the IRS to build this tax exempt organization. You know, it was my foray um, into, um, well, it was my second foray into becoming a physician in business as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, we found it in dimensions at that point. And literally, you know, the name stems from a conversation I had with my dad, who's a physicist. Um, you know, so, I mean, he's a nerd. So then he had nerds myself <laughs> and my sister. Yeah. Nerds beget mer nerds, right? So, and then and he said, well, you know, I said, dad, you know, I really want this to be kind of the, like this full scope, kind of infinite. I want the name to, to mean something, you know, to have a lot of meaning. And he said, well, you know, let's think about Einstein's theory of relativity. He th talks about different dimensions. I was like, that's it. I like dimensions. And math was my minor at Howard with oh, wow. chemistry as my my major, and I said, well, you know, let's think about, you know, the variable in the infinite possibilities that that represents. And let's, there we go, nth dimensions. There we go. Oh, wow. And so that's literally the evolution of the name because we want all, we want every student to know that they have an infinite number of possibilities to their lives. And who we were coming into medicine required that we were uh, excellent on many levels, from many perspectives, you know, from mm -hmm. leadership to, you know, our athletic activities, our academic capacities and achievements. Like we all had so many dimensions to who we were coming in that I wanted us as um, 
as medical students, particularly medical students who look like me, to know that you, those multiple dimensions benefit not just you, but the specialty you want to go into and your patients. And so we need to hold on to the fact that we are multi-talented with multiple intelligences mm. that can serve our community infinitely, right? So right. it became something that I had to be able to describe. So this is the end point of that discussion. Certainly it wasn't as, you know, eloquently put together before, but <laughs> here we are, because now I get it, right? So here I get it 16 years later. Oh, that's what all of that was congealing together for at that time, because at that time I was having to leave surgery and I was seeing patients non-operatively and it was the most painful thing on the planet not to be able to operate. Mm. And you know, people said, well, you know, you could just do non-operative orthopedics. And I, I literally was meeting my husband at the same time. He's an internist. I'm like, no offense. I mean, I'm married to the guy. He's in his office now, but I'm not an internist. Like I need to be in the OR hammering some, you know what, right? right. That's me, right? <laughs> so if I can't do that, I won't, I'm out, right? And he said, what are you going to do? I'm like, you know, I'm not really clear. We'll start this in dimensions thing and see what happens year one. I don't know what's going to happen oh, wow. year two, but we'll see what happens year two. And it just kind of organically grew, not because there was a strategic plan that we implemented with bountiful resources. No, it was, we're doing this right now because mm -hmm. I'm passionate about it. There's a need for it. Some We have a provision of some resources. Let's go for it because... You know, it's kind of like Bo Jackson. He could no longer watch football when he couldn't play it. Like he could not, he stopped watching the game for a very long time. It was kind of the same thing with me. Right. I was like, I can't pretend like, that, that. for me, that's more distressing than, okay, let's just feed this passion into others who could wind up doing what I can't do mm -hmm. physically, but I can, I can empower them. I can tool them and educate them on these resources, on, on this being a specialty pop possibility with resources, information, hands-on experiences and all of that. So um, that was a really long answer to whatever question it was you asked me a long time ago. But <laughs> no, that was perfect. That's such a great story. And I was very much curious as to what nth dimensions means. And so now it's just so clear. And, you know, I think we've touched on this, but I do kind of want to take a dive in with regard to the lack of racial and ethnic diversity in orthopedic surgery. And I was hoping, uh, Dr. Mason, why do you think orthopedic surgery has not been able to recruit more uh, members uh, with underrepresented minorities? Um, is it just because the fact that there are not enough mentors or what are you th your thoughts on that? Um, thank you for that deep question, Dr. Munger. <laughs> um, I'm not sure we'll be able to solve uh, or fully explain all of the facets of that uh, on this podcast, but um, I, I, I've had to learn how to organize my thoughts around this. Um, so I'll just explain it in ways that I think about it. Um, you know, in dimensions with our, I mean, I think our match rate for our underrepresented uh, students and women students, um, I think we have like a 92% match rate at this point. Oh my, wow. So gosh, it's not because the is, yeah, it's thank you. It's not because the candidates aren't there. It's not because right. the excellence isn't there. Yeah. So, um, and suffice it to say that, um, you know, 70% of our, um, scholars who match are African-American, but, um, I think we have like 48% of our women we match are actually white women. So we are, mm -hmm making sure that we're inclusive of everyone. We have right. um, about 20% of our, um, that's of the women, right, that we match. And, you know, we just make sure that we take this holistic approach to including everybody in our programs, because it's not just the fact that people are matching who are African-American, it's about creating allies who understand um, the underrepresentation and why it's important to that everyone is represented. So, right. you know, 
when I hear that the pool of candidates um, is lacking, um, many times it's because orthopedics has not taken a concerted effort to identify those candidates. So we we sought as nth dimensions to kind of take that issue off the table. Okay, so if that issue's off the table, then we have to look at the layers that are challenges um, that lay at the program level, that lay at the institutional level, and that lay at the specialty association level. Mm-hmm. And um, if we're thinking about you know the different barriers that are in play, um, you know, for me, the culture and what I've come to learn is that the culture of any organization, any specialty institution or program, is is been is laid out and reinforced by the leadership. So very, you see how much it takes for anything to change from the bottom up. So what's in place is the result of the culture that has been decided on and reinforced by leadership. Right. Um, And to the extent that um, any organization, program, or institution uh, can state its mission to um, be diverse, um, what I have uh, come to share with um, all of the audiences that I had the pleasure and benefit of speaking to about this is that diversity is merely the decision to bring someone into the fold that doesn't look like you. Okay, that's just a decision. Great, and let's put it in black and white. Well, that's lip service that if it doesn't equate to the provision of resources, accountability to make sure that those, um, uh, to make sure that change is actually instituted, upheld and, and, um, and honored, if there's no accountability, then that's also going to undermine mm-hmm. any efforts. Um, and then also too, if um, at the end of the day, um, if data is not collected around the diversity you say you want, we can't change what we don't measure. Right. So all of those are actual top-down decisions. <laughs> those aren't the decisions that lie in the hands of the person who wants to be an orthopedic surgeon. Um, oh, and then let me highlight a fourth. I should have been writing this down because that was, this is, this is, <laughs> this is working. Um, more importantly, um, the, the major decision um, or leadership responsibility is to create an environment that is safe and equitable right. for all learners. Um, and that, in, that includes someone who, as Shonda Rhimes says, is the first, the only, or different. And so that can mean you might be African-American, you might be a woman, you know, you could have um, a different orientation um, in terms of your sexuality or, you know, language preference. It is not the responsibility of that person to make sure the environment is safe because they don't hold the control paradigm in that situation. I, I say to people, like, if you can take the strongest microbe, microorganism or microbe, and put it in a petri dish that is completely incompatible from a pH perspective, will that microorganism live? No, and there's nothing that microorganism can do about it. But if you have control over the pH and the petri dish and what we put in the agar and all of that, that that cannot be controlled by the microorganism itself. So then what are our associations, institutions, and programs willing to do to make sure that environment is compatible with the successful matriculation and growth of that microorganism. Mm. That person does not have control over that, period. Yeah. They just they just don't. So when you ask, <laughs> you know, why don't we have more representation? Right. I mean, we gotta look at the agar and we just do. We, we just, we just, we just do. And the more I do this work and the more I, um, learn. And this is all a learning process for all of us. And I think that's all we can ask of each other, um, especially given the external climate with uh, COVID and the disparate uh, mortality that's been created in or been unroofed in the African-American, Native American communities, along with, you know, coupled with the social injustice matters around Black Lives Matter uh, manifestation, which is manifestation of, you know, this is 
ongoing hundreds of years of racism, they, it all plays into the same equation. All of that speaks to the concentration, pH, and components of the agar, right? So I think that's what we get to think about, whether you, right. this doesn't have to be something we even agree on, right? We just can, we can look at it in terms of uh, situations that we do understand that have nothing to do with, you know, race or gender, but we can look at it in terms of, you know, the, pl- the proliferation of and growth in environments that are favorable, that are nurturing, that are supportive. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't we don't blame the microorganism. We look at the composition of the agar. Right. So, um, if we if we want to um, make a shift or a change, we have to be willing to look at the composition of what we're doing. We have to be able to count and and not feel like it's in a personal attack or issue, but this is the result of something that we are now saddled with discussing and communicating about or not. Like we don't really, I think we still have a choice in this matter, um, but either we choose to take a look at it, um, acknowledge that, okay, there are issues here. We we have to acknowledge it. Um, for me, for me, I'm actually building out an equity framework um, as vice president of the ACGME's um, Office of Diversity and Inclusion Now, a framework which says we have to first acknowledge, then move into a phase of acceptance. The following phase is action. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the following phase is action. And then we have to assess whether those first three steps have made a difference. Right. I mean, that's all we can do. This is this is a process that's not going to be a quick, um, be addressed quickly. It's going to be a long-term ROI, and it really is going to be for those of us who are courageous enough to have the conversation. Um, whether you feel that one person feels that they have had a role in this or not, we can still talk about it, right? We can still right. communicate. But I think those, I think the communication is um, the first step for those who are courageous enough to have it, despite how they feel. What we know based on the data is that there is a problem. So even though we may feel that we don't agree or it may be upsetting, what we know, what we know is that there is a problem. I mean, I even try to even teach my, my bear cubs that, you know, you have to use your words. You may not feel like it because you may be upset, but unless we communicate about it, we can't get to the other side of why you're feeling the way you feel. We can't get to a solution until we communicate. And I feel that's the first step. Yeah, no, that's that's so beautifully said. Thank you so much. And I think, especially one of the things that, is con- that has come up often with uh, the recent events and the Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter movement is that actions speak louder than words. And it's it's one thing to post something on your social media account. It's one thing for an organization to put out a statement, but it's another step and it's another very, very big step to be able to actually act on what you say. And so as someone who's part of that diversity board for the ACGME, what would be like that dream list that orthopedic surgery programs do in order to help change that agar? That's a long list, Doc. <laughs> uh, um, well, I mean, we can think about it in terms of, you know, starting with um, reviewing the history of, you know, composition of underrepresented minorities in their own program count. How many have been recruited and retained, successfully matriculated through board certification? Um, let's look at let's look at attrition data, okay, and examine why or why not. And if there aren't any diverse spaces in the organization in the program, I should say, you know, sitting down with the residents and faculty and having a town hall meeting on it. Um, so much of this comes down to. Um, people who are doing the work, being willing to ask the questions of one another, 
This can't mm-hmm. be an outside job. It has to be an inside job. And, you know, we've all heard, you know, um, racist, sexist, and, you know, all types of disparaging remarks being made. You know, at some point that builds up, you know, when that, when that one person who is different um, has to take the brunt of all of that and nobody speaks up. Think about it. Someone says, you know, just something outwardly, you know, just hurtful. And then you look around at the people who look like that person and nobody holds that person accountable. Right. So then it's my job to hold this person accountable too. Oh, but in the next minute we're supposed to be on rounds and I'm supposed to be okay, focused and operating at maximal excellence. Or my hands are supposed to be um, operating at top, you know, at the top level of my particular you know, residency training year, even though I'm across the table from the person who openly insulted me in grand rounds an hour ago. Like, how how does that person, you know, continue to thrive if they're having to manage emotionally, mentally, academically under those types of circumstances, not just at the hands of the person who voiced the negative words, but at the people who were complicit by way of their silence? Right. We've all seen that. I mean, you're a woman in orthopedics. I'm sure there might've been some time at some point when you wish one of the guys had spoken up for you in some situation, if somebody had made like, you know, some disparaging remark. And maybe if it hasn't happened to you, it's happened to another woman, right? So I particularly am still so close to the people, the men in my program who said something on my behalf, maybe even when I wasn't in the room. Right. It doesn't have to be when you're there, but even when you're not in the room, that also that allyship voice matters. So, you know, that is for me very empowering when people ask, what can they do? You can hold people accountable and you can state, well, you know, tell me more about what you just said, because that left me feeling that you were making a negative remark against this person because of how they present. Meaning as a a black person, a woman or you know, otherwise, you know, we have to begin to hold our, our colleagues accountable for um, the environment. Right. Right. And what we also get to understand is that person who makes a disparaging remark in front of, you know, the entire department at Grand Rounds, everybody feels the discomfort. So that stress level goes up in everybody, not just the person that is directed at either directly or indirectly. Right. We all then get to manage that stress, that higher level of anxiety, uh, which means that, you know, there are no innocent um, witnesses when it comes to these types of events. So once we recognize that this is an issue for all of us, then I think that's when we can start to make some great strides and that it benefits everyone as well, because when you have members of diverse communities in your program, you get to learn more about that person. You get to learn more about their community, which thereby makes you more comfortable and even more culturally humble, cultural humility versus culturally competent means that you're willing to learn about another culture, demographic, Mm -hmm. um, you know, about another group of people that doesn't look like you. You're willing to learn. And by having that person in your presence, you have the opportunity to do that in a safe, safe way. So that's a, right. yet another benefit of having a diverse program. So, um, or diverse members of, you know, learners and faculty within your group. Um, but I say all that to say that, you know, diversity is the decision. Inclusion is the act of being an ally, right? Um, inclusion mm-hmm. and equity, creating that safe space, that's where allyship comes in. It is making sure that person is engaged, that makes it's making sure that you know communication is maintained with that person and that there are people who don't look that like that person who are willing to mentor, you know, that diverse candidate. Not because they are presuming inadequacy, but that because they are assuming excellence and they want to be there to help bolster that excellence that wound that person you know, landing, having landed that person in that residency program to begin with. 
right? So right. if that person was able to traverse all of these levels to land in an orthopedic surgery residency, there's got to be some inherent excellence in that person. And that's what we, that's, that's the lens through which if we could look at everyone through that lens, I think we would diminish so many of the problems that we have now in terms of having a safe and equitable work environment. But we got a lot of work to do because that is right. a fundamental paradigm shift in how we think, because that's not what the media tells us. That's not what we hear externally that's true. about minoritized communities, right? Right. So we've got to we've got to make that shift. And once again, that starts with examining our data from the top down, our practices and policies that may present barriers and challenges to the successful recruitment, retention, and graduation of our residents all the way through board certification, which also can be a challenge, just even getting to this table to take your boards. Like we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, no, thank you so much for that response, Dr. Mason. It's, um, I think it's just, you know, the silver lining I think of this happening is that we're actually talking about it. And I think that it's taking a lot for us to actually talk about it and it probably should have happened decades sooner but you know at least we're starting hopefully to have those conversations um moving on to um as much as i would love to talk about racial and ethnic diversity with you for hours and hours because this is fantastic um, i do want to talk about another unique aspect of your career and that is your work to develop a comprehensive business of medicine and practice management curriculum for physicians, which is now an online platform found on the web at www.beyondtheexamroom.com. And I was hoping you can describe to us why and what inspired you to develop this curriculum. Yeah. Oh, I can. I think I can put this in a nutshell pretty quickly. So um, <laughs> following my residency training, um, you know, I really did not have a career plan for myself. I just wanted to get through ABOS part one. Right. Just let me pass that exam and then I'll think about the rest of my life. And I had I did not have a career or a job plan. Um, my my chair at the time was going into private practice and he asked if I would be willing to go into private practice with him as a partner. And he gave me the opportunity to also run the practice. And um, not recognizing that running a practice was running a business, I said, sure, I just passed my, you know, ABOS part one. How hard could this be? Um, typical ortho ego mindset. And I jumped in feet first, having to make HR, financial, contractual decisions day one and was completely clueless. Um, right. And I said to myself, you know, actually, wait, no one taught us about this? Just like ever, I haven't heard it mentioned, business of medicine. And I spoke to my friends and from in ortho and other specialties, none of us had gotten it. So I started taking notes on everything I thought we should have been taught. Joined forces with um, uh, Dr. Karina, who's still my business partner to this day in Beyond the Exam Room. And we started, we built a curriculum on the business of medicine, healthcare economics for residents and fellows, um, and uh, self-financed courses and online modules to help. And this was also in 05, so I had a lot going on around 05, you know, retirement from right, right. orthopedics, beginning in dimensions, but this work was, was starting as well. And, um, you know, to, to date, um, we continue to, and, and we've throughout these years provided like full day courses, lectures, like I said, the online courses. Um, but once I recognized too that this, this period, like 2020 was another period of shift for me, I actually just um, put everything I know about contracts and negotiations for a doc from the doctor's perspective in a book that I just launched uh, two yes, weeks ago. Yes, I saw that, congratulations. Yes, the doctor's ultimate guide to contracts and negotiations. So I'm really, really happy about that um, contribution to the lay literature, but it's really for my physician colleagues from any specialty. It's not specialty specific, but it, I hope it serves as a foundational resource for um, residents, fellows, and even practicing physicians to understand the fundamentals. You know, I've had friends who've been in practice 10 or 15 years and they're texting me saying, I wish I had this book 10 or 15 years ago. 
this is right. so helpful. And it helps us to understand in section one, essentially who we are reflecting on our wants and our needs, which are our negotiables and non-negotiables. We have to be clear about that first. And that's in any situation. We have to know what we need to thrive in that particular situation. And, and here is pertaining to your contract, then understanding the contract itself. But that's in section two, the terms, compensation, compensation models. But that leads to section three, which is about negotiating, which is about us using our voice and gaining confidence, knowing our value and being empowered to use our voice. And I think we that that those three steps, understanding ourselves, understanding the core issue and then being willing to use our voice. Um, it's interesting. I just connected connected the dots that those are the three that's the process. Those are the three steps in the process that I've now come to see. Um, they, they provide the underbelly for everything I do, whether it's in diversity and inclusion, whether it's in coaching someone on contracts and negotiations or teaching about the business of medicine. We have to understand who we are first. We have to understand then the core content, the, the, the nitty gritty nuts and bolts, but then we have to be willing to use our voice right. and advocate for ourselves and one another. You know, I think if we applied that process to everything, including examining where we stand in terms of racism or why so many physicians are burning out or, you know, maybe we didn't use our voice. Maybe we didn't understand that that medicine is actually a business. So I, I have this my mantra, which I have in the very front of the book is doctors are in healthcare. Healthcare is a business. Therefore, doctors are in business. And if we're not seeing it that way, if we're not teaching our future residents that way, you know, then we are we are going to continue to sell ourselves short in healthcare. So, yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, for me, the most inspiring piece of your story is that many of your achievements and successes came after your early retirement uh, due to. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And um, I was hoping that you can tell us, you know, first of all, it's what your thoughts and emotions were at the time. Um, because I think, you know, as you had previously mentioned, you know, you didn't want to leave orthopedic surgery and it literally was just such a painful experience with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So I was hoping you can tell us kind of what was going on at the time. Well, um... I knew I was going to have to, I knew I could not operate anymore um, based on that arthroscopic surgery that I described earlier. But um, I also recognized that um, clearly I was gonna need some support in making the transition. My partner, Dr. Grant, who's now chief of the VA, chief of the Department of Orthopedics at the VA at Penn, um, you know, said to me at the time, you know, you're, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to grieve this as a loss. Um, both of us are deeply spiritual and he, you know, just related my scenario to having, and then he encouraged me to have very um, just transparent conversations with God at the time, uh, similar to David in the Psalms in the Old Testament where David, you know, was just, he was angry, but he would communicate that. To, to God, you know, he would communicate his discontent. And, you know, that that allowed me to traverse um, this level of loss in my life, mm -hmm. you know, with 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 a grounding that was greater than myself. So, and I think because of that, I never saw it as a stopping point. It just became a pivot point um, because I just kept going. You know, I didn't spend a lot of time wallowing. Um, I spent a lot of time nursing my right elbow, which is where my rheumatoid arthritis manifested. And all of us understanding our upper extremity biomechanics, that was strategic too, right? So he, he took, so it already took me out at my elbow because if it was my shoulder, I would just compensate with my elbow and my wrist. Or if it was my wrist, I would compensate with my elbow and my shoulder. So no, he took out the joint in the middle. So, you know, just yeah, yeah. <laughs> limited you know so yeah you're out of there so you know that was strategic too because otherwise i would have pushed through made it right. work because that's what we do mm -hmm. um 
So, um, but recognizing that I got, I got a therapist, I had a spiritual advisor. Um, once again, my mom was still there for me because she suffered. She suffered right with mm-hmm. me from a distance through all of this. Um, and, you know, I probably took some years off of her life during that time too, just, you know, hearing her daughter in pain, um, knowing that everything I had gone to to get there and now it's over with. But I, I channeled that pain into N Dimensions and into Beyond the Exam Room. And I really just kept surrounding myself with students and residents because for me, it's smart for older people to keep younger people around. You know, that's where, you know, you can find continued sources of inspiration and the reason that, you know, can continue to propel your passion even when you don't feel like it. Um, You look at, you know, you look at them, you're like, okay, we'll keep it going. Um, So, you know, there was definitely a loss, but, you know, I gained a lot of, that I was really blessed during that time because I had a dean of my medical school at Morehouse who was a rheumatologist, and I shared with him what was going on because um, you know there were no disease modifying anti rheumatics at the time either, right. so there were none of these injectables. So it was all old school hardcore meds. I was in the infusion center with patients getting chemotherapy, you know, taking these meds between patients. Um, taking these infusions between patients and then going back upstairs and seeing the rest of my patient panel for the day. Um, and, uh, you know, he encouraged me to take, to, I, you know, I said, well, I, I like teaching and back at my medical school, they were hosting a faculty development program to teach teachers how to be better teachers. And so I enrolled in that program and, um, this was my next to the last year of being in practice and come to find out my future husband was one of my classmates in that program. So, you know, we came out winning. Um, it's within like a year and a half we were married. So I was like, wow. score. That's a score. That's a <laughs> thumbs up. So so, you know, there were perks oh, wow. to the pivot. There were perks to the pivot. Um and he was he was very um you know, he was fully accepting who I was. I, I was considering myself having um, you know, being a little bit less than whole at the time because I was ill. And who wanted someone, if anybody who's had an illness knows how it feels, because you feel um, less than perfect um, right. and suboptimal, right? So, but he never saw me that way and uh, scooped me off the market faster than I thought he would. I was like, oh, okay, well, you're smart, smart enough to do that. We'll go with it. Let's go. So, that worked. Oh. So, we're, yeah, we're celebrating 14 years of marriage now. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's an amazing story. It's the best. Yeah. What advice would you tell your younger self? It's probably the same advice I tell my current self. Like, stop. (laughs) I don't have to prove my value to anyone. I don't have to know your value. You don't have to prove it. I mean, show up, be your best, be excellent, but the constant drive to... Um, earn that external validation is exhausting. And uh, maybe being able to de-emphasize that on some level. Although medical education, you know, your progression hinges on someone else's opinion at the end of the day, right? right? Your progress from rotation to rotation, it really does hinge on someone's opinion of whether you are worthy. Um, so I think in that way, it's a little bit flawed and it, it burdens us with that mindset of we always have to prove ourselves. But mm-hmm. the sooner you get to that point where you know you don't have to and that who you are is enough, um, that can start to decrease some of the weight right. you know, being carried every day. So I would I would probably mm-hmm. say that's the biggest that's the biggest thing. But he, I mean, it's taken me all these years to figure that out and I still have to mentally um be very mindful of that when I start to, you know, when I'm over, when I, you know, I'm overproducing. Like, okay, mm-hmm. why are you doing this still now? Why? Like, stop. And like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, speaking of just everything that you have accomplished, what are your future goals um, and projects that you have in the next year or two? Um, certainly with ACGME, we're um, excited about, you know, actually this space and time, which is opening the door to um, not just having discussions, but right. um, 
helping our, you know, helping our field pivot, right? By right. building some, building some innovative, um, not just solutions, but guidance to help tackle this, you know, centuries long problem. So um, that's going to take more than the next year or two. So that's what I'm going to be working on <laughs> <laughs> in the near future. Um, Cause of course everybody wants to solve today. And I'm like, uh, right. That's not going to happen immediately, but let's continue the conversation. Let's have the conversation and then um, be willing to move through um, the discomfort in being um, open and honest. That's, that's, those are individual decisions people get to make. So whether individuals and leadership at the program level or even faculty and co-residents decide that they want to take a look at that in their own mirror, that's, um, again, that's up to that particular person, but will be in place to uh, provide the guidance um, and to help facilitate that pivot that we know is necessary uh, for the long-term benefit of, of everyone involved, but certainly right now of the black and brown communities in America. So um, that's, that's, that framework is meant to um, and will be expanded to include um, equity across all domains, um, race, ethnicity, gender, orientation, language preference, ability versus disability. Um, so um, I'm, I'm actually very honored to be in a place where I help get to build another solution, much like in the mentions or beyond the exam room um, that mm -hmm. I happen to be in this place right now. It's not a coincidence. So that's going to keep me busy for the next little while. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, my last question for you, Dr. Mason, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Advice about? Anything you want. <laughs> um, a couple of, okay, well, we'll just go with the themes on the table. Um, understand yes. um, healthcare is a business. It's not going to go back to not being a business. So learn about business, learn about healthcare right. economics, learn about practice management, of course, learn about contracts. Um, and uh, number two, for orthopedic surgeons and for residents, um, I don't believe in work-life balance. Um, I've never seen the balance part work. I, I ascribe to work-life integration as a model or understanding that sometimes your life is going to weigh more heavily or require more of you on the work side. Sometimes it's going to weigh more on the personal side. But when we see, we look at it from an integrated uh, perspective, we don't have to choose. We can just understand right. it's going to, the seesaw will just lean in one way or the other. But that fluid concept decreases the pressure having to maintain the seesaw out of balance. Like who does that? Like nobody. So I'll let you off the hook there with that. Um, and then also too, um, I encourage everyone to have some courageous conversations um, and right. not expect that those, those conversations, especially around uh, race and ethnicity, um, or even when it comes to, you know, gender or orientation challenges, um, the burden shouldn't be on the person who is the, 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 a member of that community. This has to be a discussion that's had um, when members of those communities aren't around um, at dinner tables and, you know, education committee meetings and faculty meetings, um, leadership meetings, association committee meetings. That's where those conversations have to take place. And, um, because again, that microorganism cannot change its own agar. Like it cannot change the pH. That has to be changed by the person <laughs> in control of the composition. Yeah. So that is my first time using that analogy, by the way, but I like it. So we're going to roll with it. You can tell me what you think about it, but we're going to roll with it. I love it. It's per I honestly, it makes <laughs> such sense. 
Oh my gosh. I know. Dr. Mason, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I had an absolute blast and I really, really wish you the best with everything that you're doing. Same with you. Um, Thank you for providing um, a platform for voices to be heard um, in orthopedics. Um, uh, Honestly, this this conversation uh, needs to be had, especially with members of Ruth Jackson um, and members of the African-American women in orthopedics. So if this is a first step to facilitating that conversation, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the RJOS podcast with Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.rjospodcast.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vanny Kirk, without whom this podcast would not be possible. I would also like to thank the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society for allowing me to partner with them and share these stories. Thank you so much for listening, and we will bring you another great episode next week. <music>